Welcome to the Oil Can Podcast. Hi there, I'm Alan Mitchell, and uh, Jonathan Willis joins us as well from the Great White North. John, how are you? Doing well, Al. Uh, I guess we're we're going to talk Swedish defensemen today. There are a pile of them, and Ken Holland is he's got to be good for business for anybody in the hockey industry in Sweden. And we're delighted to be joined by Mike Zanger, a radio color broadcaster in the SHL. We know him well. Oilers fans know him well. Uh, welcome to the show. Thanks for having me. Let's start here. The Oilers just signed uh, Theodore Lenstrom. Uh, we know he's a good puck transporter. He just did an interview with the media, and he seems like a well-spoken fellow. Uh, tell us a little bit about this player. You know, like like you said, he's got really good wheels. That's his, that's his biggest asset. And what that does is it allows – he's got great explosiveness, so it allows him to, to like, when he's – leading a rush or, or breaking the puck out he can he can distance himself from a from a four checker um he, he he's had he had a really good year until he got hurt and then he kind of he was just getting back when uh when the season ended so uh i think he's got a good chance to uh to to, to turn some heads in edmonton in the fall if it starts in the fall <laughs> The great unknown right now. Uh, he he seems like exactly. he, he seems like a, a guy who might need a bit of transition time in the American League. Would would that be your read, or, or do you think he's he's got a real shot at making the NHL roster out of camp? See, that's the biggest question, and for me, is is you never know how a guy is going to go from a small or a big ice to a small ice, and how they're going to process things. Uh, some guys just step in like they don't miss a beat, and some guys it takes a while. So, you know that's that's hard to say. I I mean, uh, I, I I can't sort of say yeah he will or he won't. But uh, I think that you know he's a little bit older. He's 25. Uh, his his greatest asset is his skating. So you know there he's not gonna he's not gonna be a step behind. He's always gonna be a step ahead. And I think he you know if the Oilers they might give him a chance, and we'll, it's up to him to see what he can do. I, I know you you uh, tracked Joel Pearson very closely during his uh, career. Obviously, he was a guy who moved up quickly to the SHL, spent a couple of years there, and then came over. Would you put Lenstrom ahead of where Pearson was when he came over? They're a little bit different players. Joel was more of an offensive player. Uh, Lenstrom was more of an all-around player. Uh, where I think Joel had a problem is I, I knew his skating was a little bit on the we- not the weaker side, but he, he was going to take him a, a bit to adjust to the quickness of the NHL. And I think what happened is when he got hurt in camp, and uh, I think he it kind of put him on his heels. Then he got hurt once more, and I think he never really got comfortable in this on the small ice. I know he and I talked to him a couple of times. He said that it was it was a complete new game for for him, learning to play from the European where you want control to the North American where you want to move it as quick as possible. And it was, it took him a little time. So there, there's the, the great unknown. Can this, can, can Theodore Landstrom, can he do that quickly? I, I can't answer that. Uh, does, uh, you, you mentioned that Lenstrom had a, an injury at mid season, uh, anything serious, anything that's going to impede him in the future? Uh, I don't know. I don't know the, the exact extent of the injury, but I can't see it doing anything like that. He didn't miss that much. I think he missed about uh, 15 games. Oh, okay. So that that sounds like a growing or something, or maybe a lower body injury where where they give him a little time off. 
Mike, uh, we wanted to ask you as well. Uh, uh, Philip Berglund is probably seconds away from signing with the Oilers. He's a player uh, the Oilers drafted in, I think, 2016 third round. So we've been tracking him from afar. Uh, he obviously has been increasing his role, uh, adding power play and that sort of thing uh, over the SHL. Looks like he's signing and then staying another year over there. What kind of player is he? And, and do you project him as a guy who uh, could have North American success? You know, I really liked him. I watched him a lot this year. Uh, he's not the, he's not like super fast. He's quick, but he's not fast. He uh, he's he's very steady. Very you know, he makes the good outlet pass. He he ran. He was like not the quarterback on the power play, but he was he was a, a key component to to Hueleftio's power play. And uh, I liked him. He he made really good first passes. He's strong. He can shoot the puck, and it just seems like every year he's getting better and better. And and then I, I went and looked at his uh, junior stats when he was 18. And I mean, as a defenseman in the junior league, the top junior league here in Sweden, he averaged a point a game. And it just seems like every year he's played pro, he's getting a little bit better, a little bit more confident. So that tells me he's processing the game quicker and quicker, and, and he's, he's able to to read the play and jump in the holes a lot better. And uh, I can just see this season and actually this season, he's going from Hleftio down to Lynn shipping and the coach in Lynn shipping is his old coach up in Hleftio. So I think that could be a positive form as well. I was, I was going to ask about his skating cause I'd seen him, but you, you addressed that nicely. It, it seemed like he had a little bit of an offensive bump this year. Um, in terms of minutes and role, I, I guess probably the closest guy uh, the Oilers have had recently come over from Sweden would be somebody like William Lagesson. Uh Berglund's a better offensive player than Lagesson, but is is that sort of correct that they they kind of play the, the same sort of um, not not a shutdown role, but a, a two way role at least at the the SHL level? Yeah, you know. You see those guys that have got the, the natural offensive uh, ability and, and their instincts and everything. They stick out like a sore thumb. Uh, Berglund, Berglund, he's the type of guy that is a, just a steady type of defenseman. He's very steady. He, uh, I can see him as like a, a four or five guy. And uh, he, he, he's like I said, he's not the quickest. And, and there's, a, there's a thing. Will he be able to increase his speed? I, that I can't answer because I haven't watched them that much. I see Hulefti live twice a year. That's it down here. And uh, but he he didn't seem to be struggling. How's that? He didn't seem slow. He seemed like he was he was uh, an, no. He seemed like he was an average player. He wasn't quick, but he wasn't slow. So he he, he looked. He was one of the. For me, he was uh, maybe Hulefti's best defenseman, like all around, not okay. points wise, but all okay. around. The the other player that that is on our radar to ask you about is Philip Broberg. We saw him play offside on his right side, left handed shot at the World Juniors, and more of a kind of a shutdown defensive role. Uh, this was his first SHL season. We know he's he can skate like the wind, but but there's a lot more to defense than that. How did you how did you see him this year? He grew as the season went on, which is all natural for the young kids. Coming up, it's a little bit quick. Uh, personally, I thought that he was, uh, in over his head at times, the game was just a little bit too quick for him. And he was, he wasn't able to play. He was more just trying to survive. And as the season went on, he got better and better. Uh, he, he, like we said, he's a great skater. He handles the puck. Well, his passing and his, and his passing reads, I, I don't always find are the best. Sometimes he tries to force things into, 
into a dangerous area where it's, it's un- unnecessary. Um, but I mean, when I see him, I see him get the puck and he's got the good wheels and he can carry the puck up. In my, when the games I've seen and, and when I watch them, it's like when he gets over the blue line, it seems like he hits a wall. He doesn't seem to be able to find the, the open guy. And if he doesn't do it himself, it, it, the, the play seems to end. Now, when he played in the under 18s, he was an offensive defenseman and he was bigger than everybody and quicker. And I don't know if that was the reasoning he, he dominated the under 18s. Uh, it should be really interesting this season to see if he can get the game to slow down in his head and, and then his offensive abilities will come out. It just seemed to me a lot of times there was, he expected more of himself than, than maybe he was capable of this year. And he tried to force things. And then when he forced things, he got himself in trouble. And then and what Coleftio uh, did really well is they protected him a bit too. They didn't try to put him in too many bad situations early on the first half of the year. They tried to let him, you know, get, get his feet in, into the game and, and learn how to play. But uh, it, it's really hard. I, to, I don't know, what, what, what does everybody expect of him there? as a like what kind of role well just hearing the the scouting reports and a little bit i've seen of him the the comparison that at least i've i've been making in my mind is is to darnell nurse uh, just in terms of uh, playing style and and perhaps eventual nhl upside uh, maybe not the same level of, of mean streak as as uh, nurse brings but that ability to move the puck but not a great passer and uh you know he big and fast is is that sort of how you see him Actually, that's the exact uh, person I was thinking about when I when I was thinking, okay, who would he remind me of with, in Edmonton right now? Now, where's where's Nurse sitting? Is he three, four? Yes. Uh, yeah, ba- basically, because he's not getting the special teams time. He's playing a lot at evens, but yeah. 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 So I, I see. I in my head, I've talked this on Twitter a few times. I've had conversations with people. I see him as a four, five guy, maybe a three. If if his offense can come come you know along, but uh, I see a more of a four guy and and Darnell Nurse was was a good comparison. Um, like I said, when you get a guy 18 years old playing in a men's league and and it's like they say this is the third best league in the world after Russia and the NHL. There's a lot of good players and there's not a lot of time and space out there. And you these these young kids, some of them, they they uh, they're surviving. You don't see that very often in the NHL because if they're not ready, they send them back to the A. But over here, they'll play them and they'll play them. And a lot of times you'll see as the season goes on, the younger guys come January, February, March, all of a sudden they realize that they, they can play and they, and they start playing instead of just trying to survive out there. And I kind of see that with him. But honestly, I, I have no idea his, his potential upside except from what I've seen. And, and for me, that's a... Uh, 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 Maybe three, but I see a four or five defenseman. But I mean, that's not bad if you got if you got a solid four, no? Yeah, exactly. We were talking before we hit the air about you know why this is a particularly, and I don't know when it goes back to, uh, but certainly in this century, Sweden it seems to produce uh, like a conveyor belt great defenseman uh, year after year after year. Uh, I remember Hedman in '08 or whatever it was, Carlson. Uh, is there is it is it is there any particular reason? Is there more focus on coaching as opposed to playing a lot of games? What's your opinion about why Sweden's in a golden era here of producing world-class defensemen? 
Yeah, they've been they've been producing some pretty good defensemen for a few years now. I think it all starts with Nick Lidstrom, actually. And and then the way you play over here, there's a, it's a control game. So the defenseman is handling the puck all day. You never see it. You never see it when you're watching junior hockey. You very seldom see uh, ring around the boards and out. They, they they're they're expected to make a pass. And if there's nothing, they go back D to D, but it's always puck control. And then you also got the young kids that are, um, there's so much skill development in, in, in the younger, um, uh, in the younger ages growing up in the minor hockey, it's so much skill. To, it's not about winning and losing, even though that's important. It's all about skill. So what happens is you get these guys, they've learned their skill, they got their skill, and then they hop into the, into the all sense and the SHL now, because at an earlier age than they used to, because there's so many guys abroad now in the in the NHL or the A or Russia or Sweet or in Switzerland or whatever. So these guys are getting a chance. And then you know when young guys, when when they're 17, 18 years old, they get a chance to play against older men. And what happens is their talent comes out quicker than it maybe it should. And then they and then they're learning to play against men, but they're not getting killed out here, out there in the SHL because there's more room. So what happens is they're learning the speed. They're learning the reads and they're learning and they already have the skill. So when they, when they're ready to hop over to the NHL, they, they have all that and they know how to make passes. And, uh, and then what, you know, I, I watch, and I have a lot of conversations with, with friends in North America when it's the world junior time. And I mean, Sweden, how many games have they won in the regulation? 52 straight or something. That's it's something stupid like that. But where Sweden's having a problem is they don't know how to close close the, the deal. But I mean, what happens is you've got so many good players playing at a high level. A lot of all the guys on the World Juniors last season, except for one or maybe two, played in the SHL. Think about that. You got junior hockey players in Canada playing junior level, and you got these guys playing pro, like the third best league in the world. I mean, it's and they're and they're and they're playing well. Some guys are playing better than others. But they're they're at a different level at a quicker age, and I think what happens is that allows these guys to mature quicker. And then with all the skill development through their whole life, it just it, it makes it easy for them. I I think, and and it, I don't know maybe I'm maybe I'm wrong here, but no. I see a lot more skill level in the in the Swedish defensemen than the other countries, and I think that's a big reason for it. That, that kind of dovetails with something I I, I was wondering about, like. I mean, if you think of that comparison you made, you imagine, you know, the players on Canada's under-20 team all playing in the American League at, at 19 and 20. It would be a completely different environment than what it is right now. But it, at the SHL level, they have, uh, is it a 25-man roster? Like, it, it's pretty customary to run, like, four defense pairs, isn't it? And And if I'm right about that, does that enable them to bring these guys up to a higher level earlier because they can shelter them more than you can with a standard uh, six defenseman rotation? Well, most most teams who run a six, they have okay. seven guy on the bench, but they they run a, a run a six, and then what happens is, but you can still shelter them because everybody's playing like your top guys are only playing an average of maybe twenty one, twenty two minutes a game. So even a six or third pairing defenseman are still going to get twelve to thirteen minutes a game. So they're getting a lot of time. There's, I mean, the games aren't as quick as over there. Um, and then I think, and, and like I said, I, I really believe that because of the the skill development at a younger age and and learning how to make plays and wanting them the defenseman to make plays, 
and they're expected to make plays that uh, they develop a little bit different. Like I, you know, it's hard for me to say too, because I have only see a, seen a couple junior junior games of when I've been back in Edmonton the last two years. I've gone and checked out the Oil Kings, but I mean, I I see a, a completely different style of game if you compare from here to to North America. Well, if you make an Olympic team for Canada and uh, Sweden, especially the left side of the defense, it, it's Sweden is like, I mean, you're, you're, it's at a point now where guys who are being left off the Swedish Olympic team, any list you want to make, are are absolutely outstanding, and and they're they're kind of you know running circles around a lot of the other nations, uh, as you say, they've got to they've got to learn to finish things, but. Uh, it's certainly, you know, when I, when I hear the Oilers or anybody is interested in a Swedish defenseman, I'm like, well, duh, you know, I mean, I, they're probably signing everybody up out there. The SHL is going to have to start employing some guys from, from other countries over there. Um, one final area I wanted to talk to you about, uh, Joel Pearson came over here. We talked a, a little bit about him earlier, uh, kind of a crunch a little bit. I think it did take him time to adjust. As you said, he did get hurt. Uh, and then Ethan Bear, a, a, another newcomer, I think ate the lunch of all the rookies or all the newcomers uh, early on. He ends up getting traded uh, and then you know plays pretty well for Anaheim in their AHL uh, organization. But are, do you see him as a guy who's, who's more or less likely to maybe head back over to the SHL uh, this fall or whenever we start playing again? Uh I think he. I think he's coming back here. From from what I've read in the papers, I I haven't talked to him. I've texted him, and uh, he's kind of hinted at, that he's coming back over here. He explained to me during the year when I talked to him that uh, he, he 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 the styles that they wanted him to play were completely different than he was used to. So it was like learning a complete new game. And I've heard the same from North Americans coming to Sweden, so I understand kind of what he's talking about. Uh, he grew up playing a game where you control the puck, and in North America, we just get the puck out and as quick as possible. I would have, I mean, say say we didn't have this this uh, pandemic we, we have right now, I would have loved for him to give it one more year, just because of the steps he made to get to Edmonton in a quick time in the two years he went from division three in Sweden to the NHL. I mean, that's such a huge step. That's, that's like going commercial league in North America to the NHL in three years. And I mean, I would, I think he needed to get a little bit quicker. There was no, and, and I think if he would have played a North American ice more, he would have, he would have naturally picked it up. I also believe he needed to get stronger. And when, if he could have got a little bit quicker, a little bit stronger, I think that would have slowed the game down in his head and he could have, and he would have adapted uh, but I would have definitely liked him to to stay at least one more year and to see where he could have got, you know, before he, he headed home. But, you know, everybody's different too. It's hard to say what, what, what was happening and stuff like that. So I really don't know the, the, I, the, um, all the background of what happened and why he, he didn't, uh, he didn't really, I, I thought he was going to fit in a lot better than he did. Uh, I, I want. I'm going to try to get around to golf with them soon, and maybe sit and BS with them as we walk, and uh, and try to figure out maybe <laughs> what went wrong or where. No, and see see if he thought he could have been better, and uh, and stuff like that. But uh, yeah, it's 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 kind of uh, you know when you when you know when you know people going over, you you wish that they could do as as well as everybody wants them, everybody to succeed. But there's there's other reasons why people have a little bit of trouble adjusting. So that's what I'm going to try to ask him. Mike, thanks so much for this. Appreciate it.
Hey, anytime guys. Uh, great talking to you. And, uh, like we say over here, or over here in Sweden, social distancing and stay safe. <laughs> Thanks Mike. Take care. Okay. Take care. Bye now. Mike Zanier, uh, hockey analyst for the SHL. Some interesting stuff in there, John. Yeah, a lot of really good insight into uh, Swedish defenseman development uh, generally, and and a really interesting perspective I thought on on both Lenstrom and Berglund. Um, Broberg, obviously, like a really high profile draft pick. I, I think most of what what uh, Mike just said was was sort of in line with what I'd read and heard before. But um, getting his perspective on Berglund and Lenstrom very valuable. Good stuff, and uh, we want to remind you that Travis Green, head coach of the Vancouver Canucks, will join the VanCast with Jeff Patterson and Thomas Drance this week at The Athletic. Uh, later in this show, we have a, a great conversation with Hart from Puckpedia. I wanted to just talk very briefly. I really enjoyed your, your Gaetan Haas uh, story and then the, the how he draws penalties. And I wanted to just get your input quickly, John, uh, about Gaetan Haas and, and his inclusion on the team and, and where you see him playing next year with the Oilers. Well, I, I think he starts off in that the same role we saw him uh, at the when when Hawk when the season paused, which is, you know, fourth line, thirteenth forward. But I'm I'm really curious to see if he can take a little bit of a step. If he gets into be uh, a regular on the penalty kill, you combine that with his his ability to draw penalties. And, and I mean, you'll see some commenters say things like, well, it's because he falls down, you know, at least once a game. And and some of those are going to be calls. But w- what I saw was really good speed, a really smart two way player and a guy who worked like when he when he battled along the boards, his feet were always moving and he got a lot of calls drawn in that manner. I, I like him a lot. I, I really like the bet at uh, nine hundred and fifteen thousand. Do you think it's the end for Shahan or Kara or neither? Uh, I think Kara's in trouble. I, I really like Jujar Kara. I like him a ton as a player. I just don't think I don't think he's been a fit for for the for Dave Tippett's system. I think we've seen guys like Nygaard and and Archibald and uh, uh, Haas, for that matter, faster players um, adapt better at five on five, which which is a shame because Kara's a, a great penalty killer and and has been a good player for the Oilers for for several years now. And and Tippett, I mean, almost everybody adjusted. So Kara, obviously a personal favorite for a lot of reasons. So, um, all right. Uh, this is the Oil Can Podcast on uh, uh, The Athletic, and we're going to talk a little bit in the next while with Hart from Puckpedia. And on that note, we're uh, happy to be joined by Hart Levine from Puckpedia. How are you, Hart? I'm doing uh, well, given the circumstances. Happy to be with you. Yeah, so uh, we were just uh, just talking before you came on here about um, the how complicated the NHL CBA is, and uh, Kurt Overhart, the well-known player agent, has a proposal to make it even more difficult for people like you. What what did you think when you read his article about um, or his piece about having a, uh, pr- a player exception rule in the CBA? Well, yeah, first thought was I thought we we're trying to come up with proposals to make it simpler and, and easier to, <laughs> to manage, not more complicated. Um, but no, I, I was excited to see um, a proposal, even whether I agree with it or not. It's good for discussion and, and looking at things differently. Um, so when I went through the, the piece that he put, I, I guess the first st- step was, you know, he talked about how some of the um, costs that the teams pay on behalf of the players, like their medical and taxes and stuff, the employer taxes that for some reason he's thinking that it's not fair that that comes out of the player's share. Um, I guess for me, that first thought was I, I, I don't really agree with that point. I mean, I think like any company, no matter what costs you have for players or for your employees, whether it's 
health insurance or um, severance or whatever, that, that would count as compensation. So I disagreed with that point. But the next point that he made that I thought was quite um, uh, valid was the expansion fees. Like that's a huge pile of money that is sort of outside of the, the split with the players. So I thought that was... Uh, I thought that was a pretty fair point that that's kind of a pool of money that could maybe come back into the system. But um, if you want to get into some more details on how it might work, um, yeah, as you can imagine, um, I, I certainly have some thoughts on it. <laughs> the the player exception rule is one that caught my eye because I, I, I don't understand the NFL, but I do follow a little bit and they, they franchise players. If you, if you went right away, I think it would, it would um, benefit certain teams that obviously have somebody at the high, high end. What's your thought on that? I mean, it basically just increases the cap, right? Yeah, it, it significantly increases the spend um, that, that teams would have. The, the tricky part is like, if you look at it from an overall basis, you would think there's no way that NHL, the NHL as a whole or as a group would go for it because you're taking a bunch of money and you're not um, counting it towards the 50-50. So just by math, that means the players are gonna get more than 50%. So as a whole, that seems like, why would they anyone go for it? But if you think about it from an individual team perspective, if they think about it as individuals, certainly some teams would be happy to, to spend more. We know that there's teams like the Leafs and Rangers and, and maybe Oilers that are happy to spend more than the cap if they could. So from that perspective, I think there are like high spending teams that would go for it. I think the trick would be what happens to the lower spending teams. Um, as we've seen with the cap, it is kind of a magnet. And whereas before a lot of teams were kind of uh, sort of in the midpoint between the cap and the floor in recent years, almost all the teams are within, you know, 2 million of the cap other than our favorite punching bag, the senators. So um, <laughs> I think, I think the trick or the, the key part would be what happens to the teams that don't really want to spend that money. Are they okay with the other teams spending it and just not being a team that's going to put that money into it? Um, because if they are, then I could see how this would pass. But if not, then, um, or, or those teams that don't want to spend the money are worried that if, if they vote to allow other teams to do it, their fans will have a negative feeling towards them. Um, I could see them not then, I could see them not wanting to go for it. In Kurt's um, write-up too, he talked about, well, maybe the teams that put money, uh, that use this exception um, player uh, fund would also pay a luxury tax that would go yeah. towards the teams that don't. But to me, that's like a double whammy. So in addition to spending, you know, the Oilers spending 12 and a half for Connor McDavid, that doesn't go, um, doesn't count towards the cap and count against the player share. Now they're going to spend more on top of that as a luxury tax. That seems um, hard to fathom, so. I, I'm, I'm skeptical that we would ever see something like this come about just because the NHL sacrificed a whole season and then another half season uh, to get first linkage and then it down to 50% of a, a very defined set of the revenues. Uh, but I thought the way it was set up with a, the idea of a luxury tax kind of made it the sort of wedge issue that might divide owners a little bit. Because obviously, if you're the, you know, the Maple Leafs or the Rangers, you're making money hand over fist under the current CBA. You were making, you know, like you can afford a much higher payroll uh, than you currently have. And, and adding one player, it, unless you get into slippery slope arguments, it's not much. But then if you're Ottawa, you know, you're getting free money, right? So so that's great. But um, I, I don't know. Do you think there's like in terms of probability what are the odds we see this in the next decade uh well <laughs> uh, i i would say maybe five percent because if you think about it it doesn't seem 
okay, there'll be one player that doesn't count against the cap. Great. But let's just say the average of those players is 10 million and 20 right. teams do it. Okay, that's 200 million that's outside of the player's share. As a 50-50 split, that's basically 400 million of HRR that isn't being like divided the way it should. That's a huge percentage. I mean, so maybe maybe if the um, there's a new TV deal and in five or seven years, the, the cap is significantly higher. So maybe then taking one player out of it would be a drop in the bucket. But I think that's, um, yeah, it's quite unlikely. But I certainly give them marks for creativity and putting some discussions out there. I don't think the first uh, proposal is going to be the one that maybe changes things, but maybe that gets, you know, 20 more proposals and one of them are the one that uh, is an interesting idea to take up. You guys are, Gene Mellon is crazy like a fox. Can't you see that? He's been waiting for this. <laughs> well, that's no? the thing. If okay. you, when I mentioned it's the, the cap is like a magnet, the team's been right to it. The, 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 the Ottawa must be like the South Pole. They're, they're a magnet to the floor, right? They, they just try to get above the floor. <laughs> uh, speaking of the, the, the league as a whole, we've been kind of looking at, at free agency. Um, James Myrtle wrote a piece uh, on on the Athletic the other day, talking about which teams are against the cap, and a lot of them are. Uh, how are you anticipating? Assuming it's a flat cap next year, which I assume, correct me if I'm wrong, but I think that's what most of us are assuming. What kind of market do you think is there, there's going to be for the top free agents? So I think my theory would be, or my opinion is that it's similar to what we've seen in recent years where there's basically no more middle class of players. Um, if you look at like the top 50, 100 point scores of, of forwards, there's barely any players other, uh, barely any players making between like 1.5 and 4.5 or 5 million. And I think that's going to continue. I think the top players are going to get paid because they're so much more, uh, you know, there's a lot of statistical analysis, analysis that will show you the value that a top player provides to a team. I think that teams will figure out how to get them paid. Um, maybe not to the levels of the last year or so, or kind of, or certainly not escalating as, as we kind of saw a curve of those top players getting paid more and more each year. But I think those top players will still get paid. I think it's everyone else that will get pushed down to, you know, kind of that million dollar range or so. Um, when I looked at this uh, about a month ago, um, of the players that have played 20 plus games this year, in the NHL, 36% of them didn't have contracts for next year. So there's over wow. a third of players that don't have contracts. How many of those are top players versus uh, maybe middle to kind of lower end players? Uh, you know, I, there's only so many top players by definition of being a top player. So I think your top guys are going to get, um, you know, again, pretty similar money as they might have gotten the last year or two. I think it's everyone else that's going to get pushed way down into that million-ish range. Is it, you know, we see this more and more and certainly in other sports as well. It is like very rare in some sports now for the elite players, for the impact players to reach free agency. And certainly the Oilers, I think, kind of led the way where they, they kind of skipped with McDavid and Dreisaitl, the RFA, and went straight into buying long, long term as long as they could, uh, actually. So uh, like this summer, Hall and Hoffman are, I guess, the two uh, most often mentioned wingers. There are some goaltenders, but I, I think that's a market correction that we're about to see. Uh, are, are you, each year that passes, are you seeing a predictable run of high end, low end? And then, you know, because the fact that the free agency for a lot of these guys may not represent what they think it's going to, that they end up signing with their team before they reach free agency. I definitely, I think, I mean, in, in general, um, 
hockey players tend to be more conservative, right, and, and safer. And so I think just historically versus other sports, you've seen more of those longer term deals. Um, we, we've seen now RFAs taking the shorter, shorter term deals. And I think that's going to continue, um, because they do know like worst case, they have qualifying offers they are guaranteed to, you know, unless they completely fall off a cliff when those short term deals end, they'll get paid, uh, you know, at a minimum what their last year's contract was. So it's not like they're going to have to take a pay cut unless things go horribly wrong. So I think we'll continue to see the trend of the, especially the higher end RFAs taking short term deals, especially in this environment with, uh, you know, revenues being down for the next year or two. But I think as players get to those UFA years, I, I think it's still very tempting to take as much term and as much dollars as possible. I've seen some interviews with Taylor Hall where he said he doesn't want to do this in a year or two. He wants to sign a long-term deal. And, you know, you have to think about it also, his age at 28 and coming off some injuries, like you can see why if he doesn't sign a, a seven-year deal now, like in two years, is he going to get seven or is he even going to get five um, in two two to three years? I, I So I think that short-term deal trend is more for RFAs. And I think as players get to UFA, um, I think it's, you're still going to see the long-term contracts because it's just, it's a lot of risk to not have any um, sort of backstop or requirement that there's another contract coming when that, that first one ends. So I, I know this is a tough question to answer. Um, you mentioned Hall. I, I don't know how to place him because I, I thought, you know, he was going to be challenging for an eight figure contract. Then he had sort of an up and down year and, and maybe looking at a flat cap next year. And I'm thinking maybe eight and a half million on, on a deal with term. What, what's a reasonable price point for him, for you looking around the league? Yeah, I think, well, I think we're probably then in agreement that he's, and based on his comments, he's signing a long-term deal. So that's probably a seven year deal. And to me, the floor would would have to be Matt Deshane's eight million a year. I, I just right. don't see how he could, no matter what pressure teams try to put on him with a flat cap and everything happening, I just don't see how he can take less than that eight for Matt Deshane. Um, you know, the the Skinner contract was was kind of criticized, but that's certainly another um, comp to use. So I think. You know, I would say the floor is eight million, and, and I would agree with you. I think the most likely is seven years at you know maybe eight and a half or so, um, depending on what they decide to do with the cap, setting the cap for the next couple of years. Uh, but I, I I don't see him signing like a one year deal and or two year deal and then trying to hit it big. I I think he wants the security. You know, it's funny with Hall because you know the contract he signed with the Oilers, I think it was a value deal. You know, out of the box, six million bucks for that player. Uh, and now he reaches free agency in a uh, a difficult time. But, you know, something Hart, you mentioned a, a second ago about, you know, hockey players being somewhat conservative. I I mean, I would be tempted to kick it down the road a couple of years. But, again, he wants security, he wants long-term. I think he wants to go somewhere to win. Uh, and, and so that kind of all factors in. Uh, and and I guess my question is, 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 you know, if you look back at Hall's career, is it fair to say that, that – you know the long-term contract he signed originally with Edmonton. I guess because he he felt he'd be here forever, and that was the contract that was offered to him. Do you think he maybe left some money on the table and and is not maybe going to be able to get it back now because of the nature of what's going on? I I completely agree with that. I think that's that trend of the top end players. We saw this last summer with the big RFAs signing those short-term deals because. I think if you, you know, when we have enough history over the salary cap era, maybe in five or 10 years with different strategies, we'll be able to see that the way to maximize the money for the top end players is get yourself right 
you know, maybe within one year of UFA status and then sign the long-term deal. Hall's initial big six million um, cap hit deal covered three UFA years, and I don't think he's getting that money back. Like I think if he, if he, if that had only covered, uh, if it, had, if he had signed the new contract three years ago, he'd be making that same eight nine million a year that we're talking about now on a deal. So I, I, I think he definitely left money on the table by giving up three UFA years um, in that extension. So uh, a player in a similar not not a similar position, but a, another pending RFA is Ethan Bear. Maybe the most significant contract the Oilers have this summer. Uh, we had Bob Stoffer on the show, and one of the things he suggested was that the Oilers might try and sign him to a one-year deal and just kick the can down the road a year and then go for a long-term extension after that. If you were responsible for giving him advice, what would you think of that proposal, and, and what what do you think the Oilers should try to do with him? Um, well, yeah, those are I, yeah two different sides of the coin. So yeah. my advice, my advice to him would be to sign a two-year deal with a higher, much higher second-year base salary because then he'll have to be qualified at that higher amount, and that will drive the negotiations um, on the next contract. Similar, we saw that in San Jose um, do a deal like that. So that that would be be my advice: sign a two-year. You know, it's probably about three million ish. Um, cap hit, but maybe it's you know uh, two and four or one and a half, uh, four and a half, something like that. Uh, that would be my advice, and then try to sign the longer term deal. From the Oilers standpoint, if they had cap space, I think there's no question you should sign them, sign them to a long term deal. Look at Clefbaum's deal right now, right? Yeah. Like, uh, look at Larson's deal um, that is about to expire like those are quite reasonable deals and it seems like it's funny with the defensemen those younger defensemen that sign long-term deals it, it hasn't jumped up like it has for the top end forward so if a short-term deal is three million and a long-term deal is even if it gets up to five five and a half million i think there's huge value for that down the road but i, I think that's kind of a moot point because the oilers just don't have the cap space to do that so I, th- I just especially now with it probably being a flat cap i just don't think there that's an option at all so I think um, really both sides, a, a, a two-year deal makes the most sense. I guess the Oilers might be pushing, could potentially look at a, a one-year deal, but if he has a bigger year with more offensive stats, then it's only going to get more expensive. So I think the, uh, the I, I would think that both sides are probably happy with two-year deal and, and Bears side is probably looking to structure it with a much higher second-year um, salary so that his qualifying offer coming out of that will be higher. Final one for you, Hart, including media in this. How many desperate DMs do you get from people in a week trying to figure out what the hell's going on? <laughs> that, that's a Puckpedia um, DM uh, privilege. I can't comment on that. <laughs> no, I mean, it's great. It's great. There's a lot of media people definitely reach out, um, but also people that work in, in the game reach out, and it's really fun. Um and, uh, you know, I enjoy doing it. Sometimes that keeps me up all night trying to get some of the requests handled, but it's, uh, that, that's fun. Why make a website um, about this stuff if you're not, not something you want to work on all night? Well, we appreciate you. I'll tell you that much right now, Hart. Thanks well, thanks. For this. Uh, I really appreciate it. Okay, that's Hart from Puckpedia. Uh, you know what? And he's a great, I don't know how many times you've DM'd him, but I DM with these ridiculous pieces and he gets right back to me. I, I love the guy. I, I think you're right. You're right about that, Al. He's anybody who listened to this will understand why we, uh, we go to him with our, our salary cap questions. Uh, that, that was great. 
All right, this has been the Oil Can Podcast. I hope you enjoyed it. We had a couple of terrific guests today. want to let you know we've introduced a comment section for each podcast episode at the Athletic app. Make sure you say hello. Let us know how we're doing. Uh, don't forget to rate and subscribe the Oil Can on Apple. If you click on the show URL, theathletic.com slash theoilcan, you'll get 40% off your subscription. Thanks for listening. Thanks for listening.